We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Now I'm coming at you from a little bit different angle tonight. I've been doing announcements for the last four years, so y'all know me for the most part. Uh, But getting to preach tonight is an absolute privilege. Uh, Mike Spencer and I uh, met several weeks ago. And you guys know we're going through the Gospel of Luke right now. We're highlighting uh, Jesus' signs and wonders, his miracles. And we're just kind of looking at that right now. Uh, Jordan's preached, Corey's preached, Mike has preached. And uh, Mike met, met with me several weeks ago, and he said, here's a bank of like eight passages you want to go through. And I saw the transfiguration, and I'm like, man, I'm always so intrigued by the transfiguration. I love reading about it. It just is jam-packed with so many things. So I said, man, I'm going to do the transfiguration because there's so much here. And in this passage, and Jordan read it for us. Thank you, Jordan. Didn't he do a wonderful job reading scripture? Just eloquent, articulate. Thank you, Jordan. But we get glimpses of so much in this passage. So I'm not going to try to get distracted, but I want you guys to see everything that's jam-packed and how important this passage is. We see glimpses of so much. We see glimpses of Mount Sinai and Moses. We see glimpses of the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, We see the temple and the Holy of Holies. We see his first coming and his second coming, and we see the kingdom. And we see Christ in his full deity. As Philippians 2 says, he laid down his glory and to take up his cross. And now we're going to see him gain it back here for just a glimpse. Just a glimpse. And if you read through Luke, we see this overarching theme that is developed through the first at least nine chapters of this uh, questioning of Jesus' identity. Of who is this? Who is this that has authority over all creation, over the spiritual realm, the physical realm? Uh, This man does not speak like the scribes or Pharisees. He speaks with authority. You remember John the Baptist, it says, in one of the chapters it says, when he's in jail, he he calls out Herod and his wife, and he's thrown in prison, and and two of his disciples come to visit him. And he says, can you go, go ask Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another? Should we look for another? We see Simon the Pharisee invite Jesus into his home to feast with him. And uh, you remember uh, the woman who is a sinner, a prostitute, is weeping and wiping, wiping Jesus' feet. And Simon the Pharisee says, man, if this, if this was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching his feet. And you remember Jesus, they, at the end of that, he forgives her sins. And they say, who is this that can even forgive sins? And then a little bit later, they say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? And then we get to this chapter, chapter 9, and we see that Herod is perplexed by Jesus' ministry. He said, man, John I've beheaded, uh, but is this John raised from the dead? So we're questioning identity here. And then the crowds, when, when Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets of old, some say maybe the, the prophet. And the disciples start to believe, and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And he turns it on them, which we all, need to, uh, we all need to answer at some point in our lives. Who do you say that I am? And Peter has his famous confession. He says, you are the Christ of God, which sounds great, but they really don't know what that means or what that entails. So everyone is asking, who is this? Who is this prolific figure we have never seen in Israel before? And you know what? All these opinions are respectfully high of Jesus, but they all fall immensely short of the truth. Well, now we get to this passage, and we're about to get an answer from the Father himself. 
we've heard. Who is this? Who is this? Now the father's about to speak. It's almost as if Job chapter 38, the Lord is listening. And now he's about to say, this is who he is. Y'all were questioning it. This is who I say he is. And that's all that matters. So we get right into it. Verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. It says this, now about eight days after these sayings, so we got to go back. I led you all up to chapter nine. Uh, The king is here, right? The Messiah is here. Everything's clicking on all cylinders. Uh, We're going to bring in the kingdom. He's going to conquer Rome, right? We got the conquering king with us. And then all of a sudden, Jesus kind of drops a grenade. The two passages right before he says, oh, by the way, the son of man will be betrayed by the hands of men and go to the cross. And I have to think the disciples just were taken back like, wait, what? And then he says, right before this, or right after this, he says, oh, and by the way, if any man wishes to come after me, let him, take, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Like, dang, how can he be a king who rules and a king who dies? And we see right before he, he pronounces his death, right after he comes off the mountain, he heals the, the boy that's possessed by a demon, right? And then what's he say? Oh, by the way, again, the Son of Man will be betrayed at the hands of men. So he bookends this passage. Son of Man's gonna be killed. Son of Man's gonna be betrayed. And it says they were so confused by it and they were afraid to ask him what this meant. So it's almost like you've got bookends of Jesus is gonna go to the cross. This is gonna get really hard. From here on out, he's about to set his face towards Jerusalem and he's about to go to his death. Strike the, sheep and the, the sheep will, or strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And it's like right in the middle here where Jesus shows his glory, it's like he's given them a little steroid boost to get them through what's gonna be some of the hardest times of their life. And that's what the transfiguration is. He says, let these words sink into your mind. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, something they had no room for in their thoughts about the kingdom. In verse 28, it continues, it says, and he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up the mountain to pray. Now, this is Jesus' inner circle, these three men. He's got his 120, he's got his 70, he's got his 12, and he's got his three, these three. These guys accompany him at some of the biggest times of his ministry. We see him here, we see him at various healings and miracles, and then we see them in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is about to go to his death. And why he chose these three men, I don't know. Perhaps Jesus was preparing them for another level of leadership they would all partake in in the early church. Obviously, we know Peter had a huge role in the early church. Acts 2, and then beyond that, even so much that the Catholics made him their first pope. That's how much leadership he had. We see James and John, who were called the sons of thunder uh, for a reason. They were bold not only in uh, their life, they were bold in their death. You remember their, their mom says, Jesus, permit these guys to sit at your right and your left hand. He said, that's not for me to permit. Can they, can they drink this cup of wrath that I'm about to drink? They said, we can. And he said, you will. But we see James was one of the first of the disciples to die while John was one of the last on the island of Patmos. But all three of these men play a significant role ahead and there's a reason with intentionality and purpose that they are here with him to see his glory. And it says they went up the mountain to pray. Now there's two possible locations, not to get too much into this because it ultimately really doesn't matter, but there's two possible locations for this mountain. You got up in the north, Mount Hermon, and you got down south, Mount Tabor. And uh, Mount Tabor is the, more, this is the traditional site that they placed, a, they placed a church on. 
It's, it's what's believed for the longest time to be the, the location of the site, but actually today most scholars will tell you it probably happened at Mount uh, Hermon because of proximity of where they just left just eight days ago, Caesarea Philippi. And I've actually gotten the privilege of got, to go to Israel. Has anybody been to Israel before? A couple of y'all. Wonderful place. I'm always trying to go back. And one of the times that we did, we, we would drive by Mount Tabor, but we stopped at Mount Hermon because our guides believed this was the place. And I said, I'm going to put it on myself to go, fi- I'm going to go find out if this is actually the mountain. So I break from camp. I start going up the snake uh, kind of little pathway. I get about 15 minutes in. I'm like, man, this is going to take me three days. My people are going to think that I died or something like that. I probably should stop. And um, I get to this sign about 20 minutes and I get to this sign. It's in Hebrew. And I'm like, man, I've always wanted to learn Hebrew. Always wanted to know Hebrew to read your Bible better, right? but no time more than this because this sign either says this is the Mount of Transfiguration or step another step closer and you will be shot. <laughs> so I, what did I do? I turned around. So I can't tell you today which mountain it is. I didn't see the charred remains. I didn't see anything about Elijah was here or Moses was here. I can't tell you that. Um, and it ultimately really doesn't matter, right? There's so much disputed uh, arguments over where Christ died, where he resurrected. What matters is that it happened, Right? Amen. These, these things are fascinating, but it happens. So if you were to tell me, Jared, what would you stake your life on? I'd say probably Mount Hermon, uh, but it ultimately doesn't matter. And it says this in verse 29, as he was praying, Jesus, all knowing, all power, all present, is praying to the Father continually. And I'm like, man, this convicts me so much. If this man sees such a need to pray to the Father, do we not? What an example he has set for us. He is continually praying in scripture, especially as scripture highlights at the most pivotal times in his ministry. He's about to show them his glory. This is a huge deal. In verse 29 continues, it says, the appearance of his face was altered, it was changed. Now Luke uses a different word here for altered than Matthew and Mark, probably because of audience. Matthew was written to the Jew, Mark to the Romans, and Luke was written to the Greeks. So probably to avoid superstition, he uses a different word, but Matthew and Mark use the word where we get metamorphosis. So it's like a completely different change from something that was inside. When I say metamorphosis, what's the first thing you think? Butterfly, right? We see an ugly caterpillar that trudges along just slowly in the mud and the dirt, that somehow quickly over time, over a quick period of time, becomes this beautiful butterfly. And this is the words that the gospels use, is this body taking on flesh in Jesus Christ becomes this glorified, majestic king. This is God. So they use the word metamorphosis here. Uh, It is something that is revealed from inside that was already there. So his face was altered. And it says, and his clothing, verse 29, became dazzling white. Now, Mark adds in his gospel that such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. This is not natural. Uh, Nobody could do this. Only God could have done this. Only God could have been this. And only God was worthy to wear dazzling white. Uh, But this is a picture of his glory. It's a picture of his majesty, his white, hot holiness, dazzling white. And as much as he, Jesus was set apart at creation from his creation, so now he is set apart. There are none like him. No one can say I'm like that. 
And the word dazzling there in the Greek actually means to flash like lightning. To flash like lightning. So we get images and glimpses of the lightning on Sinai when Moses would go up and the people were trembling with fear. We also see imagery of the heavenly picture of God we see in Isaiah and Daniel and Revelation. Jesus, it says in Revelation 21, 23, was the light. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What has been reality in heaven will be reality someday in the new heavens and new earth, and is reality here for, for just a short period of time for the disciples to see. In verse 30 then says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Here's a fun fact. Here's the first time Moses has ever been in the promised land. Y'all remember he struck the rock the second time, was not able to enter with the people. He had to see it from a distance. This is the first time he's getting to see the promised land. And uh, leading up to this, what were some of the misconceptions about who Jesus was? Y'all remember? Elijah, one of the prophets, maybe the prophet. Maybe they were saying someone like Moses or Moses. Well, now I think not only do these men represent the law and the prophets, but I think also he's saying it can't be either one of these men because they're here right now. Jesus can't be either one of these. But we have Moses and Elijah. Moses brought the law. So we have a representation of the law. Elijah brought the prophets. So we have the representation of the prophets. Both these men and their work pointed to Jesus Christ. They were there to minister for Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ, to point us to him. And it says Jesus, I mean, he's better than them. He outshines them. They don't have the glory that he's given. They're not called the son as we're about to see. Luke 24, 27, you remember it says, the, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, beginning with the law and the prophets, began to, to explain to them the scriptures concerning him. These guys were to point to him. So he fulfills them. And something interesting about both these guys, Moses and Elijah, is they both almost saw God on the same mountain. Moses, in Exodus 33, 18, you remember, he said, show me your glory. You've called me to call these people out from Sinai. They're about to leave Sinai. This is a huge point in Moses' ministry where he's just not sure of what's to come next. And he says, you've, show, you've told me to take these people out. You, you barely have given your name. He says, show me your glory. And God, at just the right time, you remember he shows him his glory. He tells him to go up to the cleft of the rock. And you remember God graciously puts his hand, it says, over his eyes. And he says, I will not let you see me because if you see me, you'll die. No man can see me and live. And he puts his hand over his eyes and he walks by him and he takes it off and he can just see his backside. And it causes Moses to just worship. But he never quite saw the glory of the Lord. Saw enough, but didn't see it all because he would be put to death. And then we have Elijah on the very same mountain. You remember 1 Kings 19? He just brings down the fire. God brings down the fire on the Baal prophets, kills them all. He's at the height of his ministry. He is as good as he's ever been. And then all of a sudden it says Jezebel was going to take off his head and he goes into depression. He runs and God calls him to Mount Sinai. And at just the right time, he shows him his glory as well. And you all remember it said there was a huge wind that came by, broke the rocks. It said the Lord passed by, but he was not in the wind. And then it says, and a fire, but he was not in the fire. And an earthquake, but he was not in the earthquake. And then it said there was a low whisper. And it said, Elijah, come out here. And what's Elijah do? He takes his cloak, he puts it over his eyes, 
and he walks out to the cleft of the rock and he speaks to the Lord, but he never sees his glory. So both of these men got so close to seeing the Lord. And Matthew adds in his gospel, the transfiguration, that Jesus' face shone like the sun. These men are getting to finally see God's glory for all it's worth, finally, and yet allowed to live only because of Jesus, only because of the grace of Jesus. I think it's so special. And then 31, it continues. And Elijah and Moses and Jesus are together and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Departure meaning his death. And this word departure in the Greek is literally exodus. They're speaking about his exodus. Um, this is the new Moses leading his people out of bondage and out of slavery and into the new promised land. That exodus that happened under Moses was just a foreshadowing, a picture of the, re- the real exodus that was about to occur under Jesus Christ. And they're talking about this. This is the greater exodus where Moses led the people out of bondage and slavery from a foreign nation and then into the promised land. So now Jesus is going to lead his elect out of sin and in, into eternal life. And I think of all the things these guys could be discussing, they're discussing his death, which shows you how vastly important they knew his death and his resurrection were. Everything hinged upon this part of history. Jesus, I'm thinking Elijah and Moses are saying, Jesus, don't miss the cross. You miss the cross and we lose everything. We have purchased on credit your death and your resurrection. If if you don't go through with the cross, we lose it all. All our hope is gone. So you see, not just Elijah and Moses, but all these Old Testament saints that were awaiting the Messiah, awaiting this death and the resurrection. First Peter chapter one, verses 10 through 11 say this. Concerning this salvation in Jesus Christ, the prophets who prophesied in the Old Testament about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So we see the prophets were searching the spirit of Christ inside them to know when these things would take place. Everything was anticipation to the, to, to the exodus, this greater exodus, to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Uh, this is what it was all about, his departure, his exodus. This is the fulfillment of the one they have been waiting for for so long. He's finally here. And if you work back, I think about Simeon and Anna at the temple waiting on the consolation of the Lord, the salvation of God. You remember they were waiting day in and day out for the salvation of the Lord. I mean, this was what it was, Jesus was what it was all about. And then you remember Jesus tells of the Old Testament saints, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and they did not hear it. So everything was for him to come. Everything was in anticipation for Christ to come. There's a resurrection mural by John D. Ciani, one of my favorite paintings. I think we have it here if it's working technical. There we go. Nate did a great job of getting this. This is actually the largest mural on the resurrection. It's 12 feet high and 40 feet wide. It's in Dallas. Uh, but this guy, Ron D. Ciani, has got a lot of famous uh, paintings. One is the spiritual warfare with the man praying over his daughter and the, and the angel outside protecting him in the window. He painted this. So he painted the largest uh, depiction of the resurrection, largest, largest mural. And I love it because I think he, he, this isn't the transfiguration, but he, this is the resurrection. And it shows you just the great anticipation 
uh, and the magnitude of this event that these guys are discussing on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you have Jesus walking out of the tomb and you can't really tell because this is so, it's so wide, we try to get it up here. Uh, you see a crack under Jesus's feet, like his glory is just causing an earthquake. You see the glory coming out from his hands in the tomb. Uh, you see these angels sitting here. You see Roman soldiers that are passed out. But then one of my favorite things showing how these Old Testament saints were all awaiting this great exodus. You've got Abraham, Isaiah, David, and Moses. You've got Elijah, Noah, Esther, John the Baptist, and Daniel. And all, it's like all these guys are sitting there waiting on the thing that they have been waiting for, that their entire ministry, their hope, their life depends on this one event. And he's actually, Jesus, you can't really tell, he's holding the, the keys to, the, uh, to death in Hades is what that is, what he depicted there. Over to the right, you see Calvary with the crosses and the rainbow going over there to, to show them that he's never going to judge the world through a flood again, just a picture of his grace. But you have all these Old Testament saints that have just been waiting here saying, man, this is what our entire ministry, our entire life hinges on, whether he, whether he dies and rises from the dead. So of all the things these guys could be talking about, they're talking about his departure or his exodus. And I think, I just love this painting. It just paints that portrait so well. And then into verse 31 there, it says, that same verse, what he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Uh, this is a done deal. There's no one that's stopping it. He's about to accomplish it. And I think in Matthew 23, 37, it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It was often said in the Jewish culture, if a prophet wanted to die, he would go to Jerusalem. And actually, right after this, I told you, he he comes down the mountain, he heals the boy that's possessed by a demon, and it's, he sets his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that his death was impending. It was just a matter of time. He set his face towards it. So it, he's making his way towards Jerusalem the rest of his ministry. And then verse 32, it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake. So Luke makes sure that his audience knows these men were not dreaming, but they were fully awake and aware, okay? They were not asleep. It's, it continues, it says, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Uh, I think of John, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 24. It says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. This is a fulfillment of that prayer. Show them my glory. Uh, the verse right before this passage, verse 27, it says, there are some here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And I think this is a fulfillment of that. They are seeing the kingdom of God. They are seeing Christ and his deity. It is full glory and majesty. And then verse 33, and it says, and as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, master, it is good that we are here. And amen, it is. Let us make three tents or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he says. And I love how Luke adds that, not knowing what he says. He, he had no idea. I just think you are so dumbfounded and shocked, you're just trying to say something. It says, not knowing what he said. Peter, by saying this, is, is equating all three of these guys. He's saying, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are all equal. He's wrong. And it shows us that his great confession confession 
about that Christ is God, he really didn't know what that meant. And none of us really would have. And then I think of Moses and Elijah, it says they're in glory. They would say, make us an earthly tabernacle. We are glorified saints in heaven. You couldn't keep me down here if you wanted to, if you paid us. We're glorified saints in heaven. And it's almost, it says, Peter, as they were departing, Moses and Elijah, as they were departing, it's almost as if Peter is seeing these men depart and he's saying, no, don't leave. You're the law and the prophets. We've got the missing piece in Jesus. Uh, We're so close. The kingdom is here. We're about to conquer. And it's like, we have the missing piece. And I think Jesus says, man, I'm the only piece. I'm the only piece. These men were just to point to me. These men at Moses and Elijah were simply just to get you to me. You don't understand. I stand alone. Jesus stands alone. They were to point to him. Peter wants to make kind of a short, this short temporary meeting long-term because like every other Jew of his day, they only saw one coming of Christ, which was the conquering king. They had no room for the suffering servant. And Jesus, right before and right after, like I said, he said, man, the son of man is gonna go to the cross and that's what has to happen. And that's a good thing. It's not easy, but it's good. They had no room for the suffering servant. And then we get to verse 34. It says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. So all of a a sudden now we find ourselves in the holy of holies, the very present of God. God's present in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it says, they all entered the cloud where only the high priest, didn't say this, but where only the high priest we see all over the Old Testament could enter one time a year. Uh, this sh- could never have happened in the temple for them to enter the presence of God. Could never have happened in the temple. Could never have happened in the Old Testament. This was only made possible because of Jesus, which previews Jesus tearing the curtain down from top to bottom and allowing, allowing the people to come in with him and, and be in the presence uh, with the Lord. And as the author of Hebrews says, we are now able to enter boldly only because of Christ. So this is a little foreshadowing that God is about to reconcile God. uh, Jesus is about to reconcile God and humanity once again. They're about to be together. We're getting closer to the garden. In verse 34 continues, it says, and and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. I think this visual evokes Exodus 20, 18 through 19, when the people see the glory of the Lord on the mountain and they are deathly afraid. It says, now when all the people, Exodus 20, 18 through 19, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We are afraid of angels. How much more are we afraid of the Lord in all his glory? I mean, this is scary. These men were afraid. It's like the Israelites begging Moses to tell God to stop speaking. And I think James, John, and Peter understand that they they have no authority or right to be in the presence of the Lord. None whatsoever. And that's why they're afraid. And that's what's so amazing about Jesus Christ is he's given us authority simply because of his, his work, his death and his resurrection, and we entrust him and he clothes us in his righteousness. And that's why we get to go into the presence of the Lord. But these men understood that hadn't happened yet. They have no right to be here other than the grace of God. And then verse 35, now the Lord speaks. He's done listening. 
Now he's about to speak. It says, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is the message. This is the purpose of the passage. It says, listen to him. This is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, where it says in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is what it's all about. This is the guy. He's finally here. This is the guy. Listen to him. Everything else was in anticipation to him. He has fulfilled it all. Listen to him. He is set apart, Jesus is, as much as he is God's very son. To whom of the prophets did God say, this is my son? Or this is my anointed one. Listen to him. But Jesus Christ. He is as set apart as much as he is God's very son. And then verse 36, it says, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. My favorite part of the passage. Moses and Elijah are gone. He now stands alone. There's none like him. Acts 4.12, it says, salvation is given to no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Not Elijah, not Moses, Jesus. And you remember Luke 24, the road to amaze, I've already said it, but beginning with the Moses, beginning with the law and the prophets, he began to explain to them the scriptures concerning him. Nobody else but him. This is all about Jesus Christ. He reigns supreme and he stands alone. You see where Moses reflected God's glory, Jesus produced his own. Moses reflected it, Jesus produced it. This is God. This is God's son. There are none like him and there never will be. In verse 36, it continues and it says, and they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything what they had seen. And I just think, what else is there to say? What else is there to say? They are dumbfounded. I think of Job. After hearing, you remember, they're speaking and they're speaking, him and his friends are speaking and then all of a sudden the Lord speaks and this is what Job says after he hears the Lord speak. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. John in Revelation says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. They've seen the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. We have nothing to say of the glory of the Lord. We just sit in silence and in awe of him. They have now seen the glory of the Lord and left speechless. What else is there to say? Jesus stands alone. Elijah and Moses are gone. James and John and Peter are just looking on. This man stands alone. And it says, while they remained silent in those days, we see uh, from Pentecost on, the disciples freely and liberally proclaim Christ's glory in this event. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit come and completely change these men. They were never the same again. Uh, they were afraid and they remained silent, but after this, man, they, they, they preached Christ and him crucified. They were so unashamed. 
And I think about these three men that saw him on, uh, saw his glory up on this mountain. And I heard a pastor say this when he was preaching on the transfiguration. He said, man, it makes me think someday these three disciples who saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration will someday look upon Jesus on the cross. And it will give an even more of a meaning of how much he really laid aside. Man, this was God's son. We heard his voice. Remember, Peter talks about it in his second letter. We heard the voice from heaven. We saw his glory. They never forgot this. Uh, and it, it, it made them realize, man, how much he truly gave up. I mean, it changed their lives after his resurrection. They couldn't stop speaking about him. But Jesus outshines Moses. He outshines Elijah. He outshines everything. And we are to listen to him. And it's a gracious thing that before he says he's going to die, after he says he's going to die, and he gives these disciples a little steroid shot to get through because he knows it's about to get hard. It's beautiful. Listen to him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for writing down these things that you so graciously allow us to be a part of. You let John and James and Peter in so that they could tell later on the glory that they truly saw, that the crown is coming. But to get to the crown, we gotta get the cross. So Father, thank you for the glory that you've given Jesus Christ and no one else. There is no, no other name that we can ha- inherit salvation through other than the name of Jesus Christ. He stands alone, he outshines us all, and we give glory to him, not just because of what he's done on the cross, but what he is going to do. He will return for us someday. He will establish his kingdom, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So Father, help us to apply this, to live this out, and to remember the glory that has been bestowed upon Jesus that has been bestowed upon nobody else. We love you so much, and we're so thankful for the grace that he reconciles us to God. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen.